listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. This podcast comes to you from our 2020 season. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. All right, hello uh, and welcome to today's uh, Melbourne Fringe In Conversation with Matthias Schack Arnott in partnership with the brilliant M Pavilion. And here we are in the Docklands uh, under the beautiful, beautiful M Pavilion. Um, I'd like to begin by acknowledging that uh, we're meeting today on the beautiful lands of the Wurundjeri and the Bunurong people of the great Kulin nations. And I pay my respects to elders past and present and emerging. And uh, I want to say what an extraordinary privilege it is to be uh, continuing a tradition of storytelling that has been central to culture on these lands since the beginning of time. And I think the ways that those stories have been told has shifted and changed and evolved um, so much. Uh, And uh, in 2020, here in the present, we've seen uh, the way that we tell stories in a completely different way. Um, but it's it's part of a tradition of storytelling that has been central to culture on these lands for over sixty thousand years. So it's a great privilege to continue that um, to continue that tradition, and it's a great privilege to be here today as well uh, with Matthias Shack Arnott. Um, uh, my name's Simon Abrahams. I'm the creative director and CEO at Melbourne Fringe, and we are uh, in the middle of the Melbourne Fringe Festival right now. Um, But we're going to uh, cast our minds forward and we're going to go to 2021 and we're going to talk to Matthias Shackarnett about a work um, that has been commissioned by Melbourne Fringe that will premiere in 2021. But we're also going to hear a little bit from Matthias about uh, uh, his career and his life uh, and what's brought him to this point now. I'm talking about you in the third person, but you're standing right here. Uh, so I'm going to do one of those things of welcome, Matthias Shakarnat. How are you, Matthias? Thank you so much, Simon. I'm very well. Thanks for having me. And I'd also like to pay my respects to the uh, Yulukud Willem um, and uh, especially to the land on which we are gathered today and their ancestors and elders past, present and emerging. Um, thank you, Simon. It's great to be here and have the opportunity to talk. Brilliant. Sure is. I'm looking forward to it. We're going to get into it. I'm going to jump straight in Great. Um, because there'll be a, a little moment, I think, where we can hear um, uh, hear about you and your work. I'll come to that. Um, so for those who don't know Matthias, uh, hold on. I promise we'll do that. Um, but before we hear about you, I want to hear about um, a work that you're making. I want to hear about... Uh, a sound work, an installation work that you're making called Groundswell. And I'm asking lots of questions as if I don't know the answers, but I do, of course, because uh, it, it is a Melbourne Fringe co-commission. But, of course, for our audiences, um, they, they may not know the answers. So I want you to start by telling us about this new work that you are um, working on called Groundswell, and we'll talk about that for a little while, and then I promise we'll come back and talk a bit more about Matthias. So tell me about Groundswell. 
Great. Well, yeah. So Groundswell is um, it's a project that um, I've been working on for a couple of years now. It's um, commissioned, uh, co-commissioned by um, Simon here at, um, at Melbourne Fringe, but also um, in partnership with Sydney Festival and the Naomi Milgram Foundation. Um, and it's a work that is essentially a it's an offering to um, it's a, 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 it's my first public artwork, and it was inspired by just the notion of um, the public space, which is a, a very ancient um, notion of a, the, a gathering space. And um, uh, just the idea of um, creating a space that brings people together and um, uh, invites connections between strangers. Um, yeah, so that was, that was sort of the starting point. And basically, um, my work is, you know, it, it's based in sound, I'm, I'm trained as a classical percussionist, so when I think about space, I always think about sound, and the two are completely connected for me, and so the work itself is is a sort of six-metre diameter circular um, uh, platform within which is housed um, 40,000 ball bearings. 40,000? Yes. And uh, they, so, and the, the, the participants, they step onto this platform and it, it moves under, under their weight. So it's, it's a tilting, subtly, gently tilting um, uh, platform that, that that tilting motion then causes these rippling waves of, of the motion of these, these, these bearings that actually creates this very oceanic wave-like sound that's highly uh, intricate and visceral actually um, beneath people's feet so it's what's interesting about the work for me is that um, you are always have this very um, acute sense of your relationship to the others that are sharing the space and um, it's a very physical experience of sound um, wow that was a very loud motorbike. Uh, was, speaking of the physical... It was a physical, visceral experience yeah, of sound, wasn't it? Exactly. Um, and, yeah, and it's it sort of... As I began to develop the work, I it sort of struck me how, how much it, as, as a poetic experience, speaks to um, our increasingly precarious relationship to the natural world. Um, and that, that idea of just the act of even just your, your very presence in, in the world has an impact, um, has a footprint, um, a carbon footprint, of course, um, and also that notion of that we are all trying to find the, a, a balancing points between all these different aspects of that issue. And um, so that's kind of, that, that, as I started making the work, that became increasingly a driving force conceptually, but also that way that we, it's a collective. It's a it's a collective negotiation, um, and but yeah. So it exists on multiple levels as an artwork. I would say, yeah. Totally. And so it, it feels to me it's this giant um, sculpture, you know, a ten meter um, drum. So it is both a, a visual work. It is a three dimensional work that you climb on, but it's also a an audio work that you listen to. So it's a work, I guess, that seems to function on so many different levels, mm. but also seems to have a, a resonance or a, a message to our um, culture, our community more broadly as well in terms of what it's trying to say. Yeah, um, yeah. Has that shifted for you? 
when I think about um, the very first conversation that we had about Groundswell, which was called uh, Constellations at the time, um, when I think about Groundswell, the world that we are in now is a completely different world to the one that existed um, in so many ways. When was that? Two years ago when we started those conversations. Yeah, yeah. Ha has the resonance or meaning of the work shifted for you over that time? Absolutely. I mean, I feel like often when an artist makes work, I, th I think I can speak for probably a number of artists in having this kind of experience, is that, that the work starts to kind of speak to you in certain ways. Like um, as you're making it, you sort of discover certain um, sort of meanings that weren't necessarily apparent when you started. And... Um, and that's really what happened with this work is that it's it sort of, and I'm sure that is the shifting sort of context and culture that that we find ourselves in now and over the, that, that those shifts that even became more sort of acute over the, the, the couple of years of making it. Um, it did start to speak, um, speak, well, sort of this, this meaning started to sort of become really apparent and it's, it's, it's interesting, you know, it's an interesting process of listening to that and then actually going down that path and, and, and using that as a chance for reflection, but also creating a, a, a space that might open up a chance for reflection for audiences as well. Yeah, Yeah, totally. And um, there's something in that sense, I think, of, um, of bringing people together that at this moment it still feels like such a rare and exciting thing to do. Um, and it's a work that will bring people together, but also not in the way necessarily that perhaps had been imagined, um, in that uh, when people can gather on this work, um, so the way that people move around the work will tilt the surface, right? Yeah. So exactly. the way that people move will create the sound. Yeah. So surely the way that people might move now is different to how they might have moved a year ago. Perhaps before we might have seen strangers clumping together and touching each other and trying to make it kind of move in different ways. And now perhaps the way that people move will be different and, and we may kind of hear the sound of, of social distancing. Is that yeah. a sense of... Yeah, know? and that's another, that's another way that the, the work has taken on an interesting sort of layer of meaning um, because, you know, I've been testing the work in a, in a warehouse over the last couple of weeks, uh, which has been really exciting. And we have, you know, more than ever, this really strong sense of our bodies in relation to other bodies. And that sense of our bodies in space is obviously such... It's, it's an, almost a politicised... Um, thing now in relation to COVID and the 1.5 meter distancing and all this, all this stuff. And what's interesting about experiencing um, groundswell is that, like, the difference between standing in one position and then taking a step to the left changes everything in terms of what the the dynamics of the artwork. 40,000 bearings just move immediately in response to your 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 shifted weight, um, and so. Yeah, and it's also just really, it's kind of hard to describe, but the, the, the way you, you feel this, um, this unbroken line of connection between yourself and anyone else that's standing on that tilting platform is, is almost palpable. So th there's also that element that, that is increasingly just becoming a part of our COVID normal, so to speak, but yeah. Yeah, and so uh, let's talk nuts and bolts. Um, 10 metres...
six. Six metres. But the actual um, artwork is 11.2, yeah. Got it. Yeah. Both six and 11.2. Yeah. Let's call it an average of 10. Okay, great. So uh, the drum is six metres. Yeah. Um, uh, but the whole sculptural work is, mm. what do you say, 11.2. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, anyone can access it, right? So, yeah. so it's a work that is completely accessible. Yeah. Uh, it's wheelchair accessible. Yeah, but it's also interesting in terms of um, different types of listening, you know, um, the deaf and visually impaired, um, it's the, the, the experience of the audio is just as much a vibrational experience as a, as a purely uh, sonic experience. Um, and one thing that I've neglected to mention is that every couple of minutes of being on this um, artwork, the whole thing starts quivering and vibrating beneath, beneath you. So... Um, 40,000 bearings start chattering as they move, um, almost like a there's a sort of seismic earthquake-like vibrations beneath you. And that, that kind of comes from this idea of, you know, wanting to create a situation where people are becoming finely attuned to the subtle shifts in weight of their own body, but also in relation to the others that are sharing that space and how we can... Um, we can, you know, navigate that sort of negotiation, but then there's also these these forces that are outside of our control that 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 just are unleashed and that um, overwhelm um, uh, our our actions. So that's where that's coming from. But yeah, it's in, it's an interesting um, mode of listening that happens because you literally feel the vibration throughout your whole body. Uh, I was just testing it yesterday and was very excited about that. So it's sound that you can hear. Yeah. It's sound that you can feel. Yeah. And uh, there's a visual element to it as well in terms of kind of at night there's lights and it's it's sound that you can you can see as well. Yeah, yeah. So we've the the whole thing functions almost like a light box at night. So the um the the, the steel ball bearings sort of light up and become these pinpricks of light on a black background. So it almost takes on the quality of a of a moving constellation of stars or like yeah, it's it's got sort of m- multiple sort of th- th- visual things that it seems to evoke, um, or like droplets of water, or and sometimes they're silhouetted against the light and become these almost like swarms of insects. So yeah, it's it's amazing what a ball bearing, what what uh, sort of double lives ball bearings can have in an artwork like this. Yeah, yeah. I, I I mean it sounds so exciting, you know, and. and um I've followed the journey of this work for a long time and um, when I think about the first conversation that we had about this work, mm. um, I remember calling you into my office back when we were allowed in the same office as each other and uh, talking about Melbourne Fringe's vision, which is one of cultural democracy mm. and that sense that anyone, any citizen, any person um, should be able to be part of a, an experience that makes and creates mm. art. Yeah. And I remember talking to you about that and saying, um, I want you to make a musical instrument that mm. can be played by the people of Melbourne. Mm. And I hadn't imagined that what is now Groundswell would be the response. Mm. Was it a work that came to you because of that sort of provocation or that conversation or had it been bubbling away in your mind as something different? Well, it did actually come, come directly out of that conversation because I hadn't... Um my work had, has always um, had a, 
a, a bit of an installation element to it, but almost always situated myself as a performer within it. And um, I always had this thing where I sort of wondered, oh, what would it be like to actually create, you know, a purely purely installation installation that doesn't actually involve me as a performer? And it had always been something that I'd wanted to have a go at, um, but hadn't had the opportunity to really explore. And then when, when you sort of um, made that proposition of what would what would your work look like in a public space and what it just sort of shifted something for me in just like the way I think about my work and um, it was it was a really exciting sort of new um, direction for me to take and I'm just so delighted that it's come together in the way that it has you know touch wood and uh, and um, that I have the opportunity to share it with people you know yeah, yeah absolutely and that will happen in Sydney um, in January. Uh, it has just been announced um, uh, that Groundswell will, will premiere at the Sydney Festival, um, which is hugely exciting. Um, we had, of course, planned um, to be uh, premiering Groundswell right here in Melbourne um, at Melbourne Fringe. But funnily enough, there was a global pandemic. I don't know if you noticed. Um, and it will happen here in Melbourne Fringe uh, in 2021, which is incredibly exciting. How do you think Sydney is going to respond to Groundswell? And do you think there'll be any difference between a, how a Sydney Festival audience and a Melbourne Fringe audience might respond to Groundswell? Yeah, I'm really curious to see. I've, I've never, I've never made a public public art work before, so the the, the nuances of the differences are, um, are something that I'm looking forward to discover. And I, I have friends who do this sort of. This is the main thing that they do, and they talk about how it's how interesting it is to to note the differences from city to city and the types of engagement. And yeah, but I, I think also the location is like really interesting in relation to like how people engage with it. And in Sydney, um, it looks like it'll be a um, in, in at a waterfront location. So also, you know, the speaking to the sounds of the water um, and those kind of parallels are going to be really interesting. But, yeah, I'm really curious to find out. Yeah, and, I mean, that's the thing about public art, I guess. You know, it is about a response to public space and a response to public time, I think, as well. And, yeah, um, absolutely. I'll be, I'll be fascinated to see the work um, up there um, as we have a a well-deserved glass of champagne while it vibrates beneath totally, us. Totally, totally. Um, Matisse, tell us about um, your other collaborators on the project as well. Yeah, so um, my uh, long-time producer, Michaela Coventry, has really um, been instrumental in making making the whole thing work. Um, and then there's uh, Keith Tucker, who is a, an incredible... Um, uh, production manager, technical design, lighting expert, kind of um, can do anything seemingly. Um, and he's really, um, he's sort of directed the, not only the technical design, but the construction of this, what turns out to be a hugely complex exercise to put this thing together. And then there's, he's directing a team of, um, I, I think there's something somewhere between six and eight people who have been building it over the last month out in Showworks in Preston. And then there's um, sound designer Tillman Robinson who's coming in and helping me sort of navigate how to, you know, where to place microphones to sort of amplify the some of the more subtle sounds and, yeah, the placement of the subwoofers, which is, will provide all the low frequency. Yeah. Amazing. What a team. 
Yeah, amazing team. And um, tell us what it's been like to be making work uh, as an artist in the midst of a Melbourne lockdown. Um, how has uh, how's your experience of, of making work um, been and how, how have you done it? Because you, you're about to premiere a work at the end of a lockdown, so you, you must have been working over this time. Yeah, well, it's been really interesting. Um, you know, one of the things that... One of the things that's a bit different about creating a large-scale public artwork um, from making a piece of music, which is what I'm used to doing, is that you sort of... A lot a lot of it happens in the design stages, obviously. So, um, And then it just suddenly, in a flurry, right at the end, all gets built, and you sort of don't have much room to move at that point, um, whereas I'm used to sort of making a piece of music and just tweaking it day by day for months. Um, so really a lot of the lockdown has been me sitting in my room and just drawing um, iteration after iteration of the design of this thing and um, just trying to find the essence of, uh, of what, the, what this experience should be through, through thinking about the design and the accessibility and um, the scale of it. But yeah, it, it definitely sometimes started feeling a little crazy. Just you know, the the amount of sort of designs and then redesigns, drawings, 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 and then getting them sort of three D modelled in a computer, and then coming back and then making tweaks and getting that three D modelled, and then testing materials, but via click and collect. Yeah. Yeah, it's been fascinating for me to be at the end of the email yeah. to see, you know, those things come through, you know, and, and bit by bit and see how it's changed and evolved and yeah. get a little uh, WhatsApp message with a, a new video or something. So yeah, totally. it's fascinating to see, um, to just see, I guess, the resilience that you've been able to keep working over this time and, yeah. um, and to make something incredibly ambitious um, in the midst of you know, um, such difficult or challenging circumstances, I think. I yeah, think but to be honest, it's been one of the things that's just kept me going, you know. Like, it's been really nice to have the odd project like that that has just been something to look forward to and to, to something that I could actually work on from home as well, which was great because I had other things, obviously, like like all artists, I had a, had a bunch of things that were cancelled and so it was nice to just have these beacons like, like Groundswell, yeah. Um, Groundswell uh, has been um, uh, supported by the Naomi Milgram Foundation. Um, what, uh, what is it for you, I think, that um, philanthropy can do, perhaps, that um, other funding can't do? Is there something about the way a, a commissioner um, is able to um, support a, a work uh, or an artist's career, because you've, you've worked with Naomi Milgram Foundation before. What, what is it, I guess, to have a, a work commissioned or supported by philanthropist, and how is that different to you, for you, compared to, say, applying for a grant and, and going through other means? Yeah, well, it's, it's amazing, and it's a total privilege to be supported by people like Naomi Milgram. Um, I think it's, it's, it's a totally different thing that is... It's, it's really refreshing because it doesn't come from this sort of... Um, very administrative heavy process of applying and, and, and meeting sort of specific criteria, government criteria. Um, but it, it sort of stems more from conversations and from a sort of finding people that have a shared vision for what the role of art um, can can play in, in society. And um, 
and yeah, it's 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 just it's just great to be embarking on the conversations as much as anything else. Um, but yeah, it's just I'm I'm incredibly thankful, of course, and um, yeah, but also to the the government the government funders, you know, to Creative Vic and uh, City of Melbourne and, uh, yeah. Absolutely. And I think um, it's a rare thing for... An, you're an independent artist. You don't have a company. Um, you work with another freelance producer who's also an independent. Um, to be able to make a, a large-scale work, it's a rare thing. And it, it yeah. takes... Um, yeah, takes a whole team of, of people to come together to, to see a vision, I think, and, and want to see that realised. So yeah, I think totally. something in how you've articulated that um, has, has got people excited. Certainly it's got me excited. So That's good. That's um, good. I look forward to it. Um, all right. I want to talk... Let's go back. Yeah. Um, one of the other things uh, uh, I want to talk about, of course, is um, some of your previous work, a um, bit about your your career. What what got you to this moment here? Yeah. Um, uh, one of our partners, Melbourne Fringe, is Monash University, the, the Centre for Theatre and Performance. Um, so, of course, I'm interested in your tertiary education uh, and your training and and kind of where you where you started. Can you can you yeah. cast your mind back to that? Yeah, yeah. Well, basically, I think. Yeah, it, it, I don't. It um, my my training started at high school. I went to the the Victorian College of Arts secondary school from year seven. So it was from very young age, like this very focused um, classical sort of contemporary classical education, where I was learning how to play orchestral percussion, so xylophones and timpani and triangles and snare drums. And um, but the 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 fun thing about um, percussion is that it's really just a very open-ended art form and medium, and uh, it's sort of even in the Western art tradition, it's it's incredibly open-ended um, and includes things like the hubcaps of, or the brake discs from cars through to um, cap. You know, the cowbell is literally it's it's a it's an iconic musical. Um, symbol pop culture symbol now that the cowbell, but it literally is you know um, stems from Swiss cows walking around in meadows. So it's it's just incredibly diverse the where the sound objects c come from in at least in the Western art music tradition. And then so it seemed very natural for me from a young age to sort of just think outside of even just m musical instrumental practice into also found objects and. Space, spaces as sound um, generators and activators. Um, so, yeah, but anyway, I, I, start, I, I went to high school at VCA High School and then also went to the VCA and, and around 18 started um, receiving mentorship through Speak Percussion, a local really amazing percussive arts organisation um, run by Eugene Ugetti. And it was just an amazing um, opportunity to be mentored by one of... Uh, Australia's leading thinkers within that space and all through my 20s really had an amazing journey of um, working with composers, musicians, choreographers, artists from around the world on projects through that company but also started making my own work, um, you know, at the age of 22 like in Next Wave and these kind of really great organisations that support younger artists and um, yeah, from the, my first, my early project, they were they were always exploring the intersection between sound and space, um, 
and yeah, the sort of the visceral nature of sound. Um, the first, my first solo project for Next Wave was actually a collaboration with an architecture firm, and we made a a small micro space that would enclose one audience member at a time in pitch dark, and then um, over the course of a 10 to 15 minute experience, sort of. 10 kilograms of rice and sand would fall across the exterior walls of the structure and they would feel like they're in an avalanche and I would play on the walls and yeah so that's kind of that was that's kind of where it started and then I just kept exploring that, those kind of ideas. Uh, and what year was that that you made that work? 2012. 2012. So not that long ago really no, that you made really. your, your first work. Yeah. So, so um, in that time you've then made a series of other works and yeah. your star has risen very quickly. <laughs> um, uh, tell me about um, another major work, I guess, that, that you've made since that time. Well, my, my most recent work um, was called Everywhere and it premiered at Melbourne Festival last year and it was um, exploring sort of large-scale cyclic motion in sound um, and uh, involved constructing a, um, a, another six-metre diameter circle. Um, I seem to be fixed on six-metre diameter circles. But, it, yeah, a revolve that um, in the ceiling from which I suspended hundreds of percussive objects that would then um, float in these giant orbits and I would perform on this work. And it was essentially this kind of world-building exercise but through sound and exploring the sort of interconnectedness of, of things um, inspired by the sort of interspecies dependence in um, in forests and uh, just kind of exploring how humans potentially don't have to be at the centre of things and it just kind of exploring sort of the, the way that a, an environment can dictate the terms upon which it, you engage with it as much as the other way around um, but in a musical context. Yeah, so that was, that was my most recent work which... Um, has been um, completely put to bed by COVID, but hopefully will uh, rise yeah, again. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> so your work, you know, it seems characterised by this, um, again, this fascination with space and yeah. with um, creating environments um, mm. that interact with sound mm. uh, and in creating instruments. You yeah. know, m most people, most musicians learn to play instruments very well. Yeah. But you're like, no, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm going to... I could do that if I wanted to, yeah. but actually you're much more interested in creating instruments, right? Yeah, and it's, it's a funny thing because when you, when you embark on these journeys, you do kind of think like, oh, why didn't I just stick with that drum over there? Like, it works fine, you know? Why did I have to th think up this whole new approach to everything? And sometimes it feels incredibly frustrating you know, to, to realise that you've done, you've set up this impossible situation for yourself again. But there is something about creating these environments. I Actually, I almost don't really see them as creating instruments. I see them more as, yeah, creating... It's almost like putting together the pieces of a, of a sonic installation. Um, but, but, yeah, it's... It, I guess why I do that is it, I like the way that... I'm, I'm interested in a relationship between a, a musician and, and an instrument that isn't just the the instrument being a tool a tool that is wielded by a performer, which to me is is it's great and I love um, musicians 
playing instruments, of course, but in my work, I'm interested in that the way that relationship can be a little bit more dynamic and um, the way an, an, an instrument could actually have a way of moving and a way of sounding of its own accord and that might sort of, yeah, once again, dictate the terms upon which the, the, the performer engages with them. And then the, the, the conceptual readings that then come out of that as an audience member when you see... When you see an object in motion and when you're hearing what you're seeing in terms of like it may be spinning because I've hit it while it's suspended and you're hearing the, the sonic effects or the acoustic effects of that spinning, it sort of then starts to take on other layers of, the, of, of reading, you know? Like it might, might feel a bit like a pulsar, like a flickering star in the sky or it might speak to, you know, the way, the way um, animals move or... Uh, or it might have an industrial quality, and you know the the way. Then, then when you add another object next to that, and the way they speak to each other, you know, all these things start to happen for me at least. Yeah, I love I love that about your work. I love that your work has um, it's an incre it's incredibly abstract. Your mm. work, and for those who haven't seen it, it's very strange mm. uh, and and abstract yeah. and obscure um, and beautiful. Yeah. Um, but I love that it is so grounded in meaning. And not, uh, even though it is abstract, it, it has, it's, yeah, it has such a clear through line for me of, of, of meaning, particularly, I think, in its intention, you know. Um, but I love that you leave it open to interpretation as well. Mm. And I think about, I think about, say, um, Robin Fox, who's another musician yeah. who is in one of these uh, Bowen Fringe in Conversation M Talks events. Uh, so tune into that. Um, uh, and Robin will say, I'll say to Robin, you know, tell me about your your work, what, you know, what does it mean? What's the intention? He's like, it doesn't mean anything, you know? It's music. It's supposed to make you feel things, yeah, you know? Totally. Um, which I kind of love as well. Um, and, and do you, when, when, you're, when you're making your work, do you, do you have that sense that you're like, I don't care what you make of it, you know? It, it can mean anything, it's abstract, it's music. Or do you come from a much stronger, like, no, this is, this is what I'm trying to say about the world with this piece? Um, I think somewhere in between the two, yeah, like I, I do feel like that is the strength of music is that it sort of almost bypasses those kind of parts of the brain that sort of exist within language. Um, and I do really believe in the power of abstract artistic experiences um, that don't try to sort of explain exactly the terms upon which you should understand it or read it. But then I also enjoy sort of setting up sort of offerings of interpretation for, for an audience or a space, a space of ideas that they can sort of inhabit and kind of connect in their own ways. Um, yeah. So sometimes it is about like offering multiple um, potential readings as well so that there, there might be a few different ideas that then it doesn't feel didactic. I always think as well for audiences perhaps who aren't used to contemporary experimental work, um, it can be very familiar, uh, very unfamiliar. It's um, giving people permission as well to not have to understand, to just let it wash over you. Totally. And, yeah. you know, you don't have to understand a meaning. It can just feel something and that's, that, yeah. that's okay. That's, yeah. that's enough. Yeah, totally. I think especially in a work like Groundswell, while it does have this framing that does... In, in some ways speak to the climate crisis, I'm also just really interested in what it, what it feels like to be on this thing and to feel this, this ocean of sound moving beneath you and the vibrations 
passing through your body and being in a cityscape but experiencing this very, at times fragile, at other times incredibly intense artistic experience. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, can you tell us a little bit about um, maybe who, who are artists that have influenced you or your practice or whose work are you interested in? Who should we be Googling right now? Yeah, um, well, a range of artists. I mean, I sort of grew up really following the work of Fritz Hauser, who's a Swiss percussionist who um, works a lot with space, and his main collaborator is actually an architect. So there was, you know, and from a, I think I was 15 or 16 when I had the chance to connect with him for the first time, and so that was a really big influence on my work in terms of just thinking about, yeah, the, the connection between sound and space. Um, uh, you know, Pauline Oliveros in terms of, like, deep listening um, and sort of engaging with, yeah, the act of listening as an aesthetic experience itself. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, there's a whole range of artists. I mean, Robin Fox, who you mentioned, has been a big influence for me. Um, seeing someone locally make work of such an incredibly high colour that exists in that sort of audio-visual space has been really inspiring. Um, yeah, the list goes on. My, my parents also... Um, uh, have a, a background in Danish design. So I grew up with this sort of uh, um, always surrounded by sort of d Danish architect furniture from the 1950s. I think that somehow has made its way into my work in terms of like design-oriented thinking and, yeah. I love that. Yeah, that, that sense that it was perhaps there from... Uh, maybe before you were even born, it was somehow... Somehow in that, that, that sense of design and space yeah, and how maybe, it can influence maybe. sound. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. And because we're Melbourne Fringe, we're always interested in a new next generation as well. Are there um, young or emerging artists whose work you see out there, perhaps who people haven't heard of, maybe who are influenced by your practice, who you think we should be keeping an eye out on? Yeah, I mean, there's lots. Um, let me think. So, the within the sort of local electronic music scene. Carolyn Schofield's doing really interesting stuff. Um, uh, the young percussionists that are doing really cool stuff include Kaylee Melville and um, uh, Zilla Pepper Georgiou and Hamish Upton, who are kind of the next generation of people coming through speak percussion and doing really interesting work. Um, uh, I'm not sure if Alexandra Spence is younger or older than me, but she's another emerging artist who's doing incredible stuff in the in the area of field recordings and found sound. And, yeah, there's so much amazing stuff going on at the moment. Yeah, awesome. There's some some names to Google. Um, totally. Always want to make sure we're, we're sharing the love. Um, obviously, uh, we're here as part of Melbourne Fringe. Um, do you have, uh, I guess... Um, is this your first time being part of Melbourne Fringe? Have you been a fringe artist before? I have been a fringe artist before. What, what, yeah. Tell me, what, what was it? Everyone's it always was, got a fringe it, it story. It was crazy. It was crazy. I it love was it already. It was a it was a project that um, explored. Uh, it was with Speak Percussion. I think it was in 2011 or 2012, and it explored robotic percussion. So um, I think we curated sort of five or six artists that all have a sort of a robotic percussion practice. Believe it or not, there are many in Australia. And uh, we we created this sort of bigger than Ben-Hur project where robots were attached to the walls at the substation, actually, and um, were 
playing drums of their own accord, but then we were also playing along with it, and it was it was fun. It was really crazy. Yeah. I love it. When was that? Yeah, 2011 or 2012. Yeah. So around around that time when you were um, yeah. trying out new things, and then uh, this is your is your first time back at Melbourne Fringe now. I think so. Yeah. Now nearly a decade. Yeah. Later, well, 2021 will be the premiere yeah. of the work. Yeah. And. Um, from a work in our independent program now to a, a kind of central signature work uh, commissioned by the festival um, yeah. in a short period of time. Um, it's hugely exciting. Yeah, what, totally. What, um, I guess, what does Melbourne Fringe mean, mean to you? It's one of those festivals that's just so important to the arts ecology in Australia, in my opinion. You know, it's just supporting um, just diversity and a real range of artists from... Uh, all um, parts of their career as well. And, uh, yeah, just creating this incredible range of experiences for Melbourne audiences um, and with a real sort of uh, increasingly a really strong curatorial focus as well. So, yeah, that's... It's it's a really important festival in my in my mind. You have to say that because I'm sitting here. I do, but yeah. I, I also believe it. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's lucky. I think so too. Oh, great. I, That's lucky I, as well. I agree. It's very lucky. Um, and tell me, what's next for Matthias Schack Arnott? Do you have um, other projects in the works? I do, yeah. I'm working on a big new project. Um, performance installation dance work with Lucy Guerin um, that I'm really excited about um, that's been sort of um, commissioned through the new Rising Festival. Um, and, yeah, that involves um, pendulums, actually, um, 58 pendulous bells in a space, um, large-scale pendulums, and uh, 10 dancers and a roaming audience that, sh that move along shifting pathways of light through this forest of moving sound so we're sort of in the throes of making that currently i'm about to go into development next week again with some dancers and lucy um yeah and then i'm also in the process of um embarking on a collaboration with um indonesian filmmaker garen negroho which is really exciting and we're exploring this um incredible sort of um, Indian, Javanese ritual dance form called the, the, the Badoyo um, that is many hundreds of years old and sort of explores um, storytelling in a sort of a in this kind of through the prism of a very slow moving choreography. So yeah, we're, we're kind of scheming as well. But yeah. They sound like some pretty exciting works. Yeah. And um Beyond that, in, I don't know, in another 10 years, so 10 years ago you were doing Fringe, mm. um, in another 10 years when you're putting together your next Fringe show or mm. wherever it is that you might be in the world, mm. um, do you have a sense of what your career will be doing in the long term, what you want to do? Yeah, I mean, I don't really, to be honest, but I, I sort of, I, I sort of, I, I do have some hopes though, which are that the the work that I'm able to create work that feels meaningful for, for for where we're at at that point in time and I guess sometimes um, as an artist you can kind of feel like you're either in in your own head or looking out and seeing everything that's happening around you and I I just hope that I can make work that feels um, that it's really contributing continues to contribute um, meaningfully uh, as the world around us shifts and, 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 and enters further into the, this kind of 
precarious climate crisis and yeah just thinking I'm thinking more and more about what, what it means to be an artist at this point in time and what that will mean in 10 years time yeah yeah totally and and it feels like um feels like we don't want things to go back to how they were before no, exactly. it was broken before yeah. and so it's an opportunity now for us to think about the world we want to create and how to make that happen you know yeah. do, do you have i guess a hope or a dream for the the future of the arts and and uh how we can all work collectively to to make things different yeah i mean i think as you say um not just going back to how things were you know thinking about novel ways to sort of make our industry more sustainable and you know maybe rather than trying to think about how we as artists can save the world single-handedly with an art with a single artwork um as much as i'm all for idealism um maybe just sort of more practical um measures around how we can just be that bit more sustainable as we move forward and you know especially as australians with touring and things like that um but yeah i certainly don't have the answers no, look, I don't think any of us do, but I no. think exactly as you say, thinking big, um, making art, uh, but also taking on our personal responsibility feels like um, a pretty good way to go. Totally, yeah. Um, when I first spoke to uh, Wesley Enoch at Sydney Festival about this work and about um, your practice, he said, uh, he said, Matthias Schakarnit, he's the real deal. And I That's said, nice. uh, I reckon he is too. So I think we've absolutely heard that today. So it's been a great pleasure to chat to you today. I'm very excited very to see um, Groundswell come to fruition. We'll see it in Sydney uh, in January. We'll see it um, at Melbourne Fringe in October 2021. Um, so uh, thanks to M Pavilion for having us. Um, but thanks, Matthias Jackarnett, uh, for a fantastic conversation. And thanks a lot, Simon. Uh, chat to you really soon. Thank you. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. This podcast comes to you from our 2020 season. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.